This is episode number 79 of Patrick Jones Baseball. On this episode, I bring on Wayne Krivsky, former general manager of the Cincinnati Reds. Wayne is responsible for some outstanding trades that the Reds have gotten in the past, including Bronson Arroyo, Brandon Phillips. He actually um, is also responsible for drafting Josh Hamilton in the Rule 5 draft, which could be one of the greatest steals of all time, um, considering that the career he ended up having after his comeback. Um, and we also get into the game of baseball today and, and how the analytics play such a key role and how games are managed and the defensive shifts and, and so on and so forth. If you guys haven't, please head on over to iTunes and subscribe, rate, and leave a review. I would greatly appreciate it, and I would be honored if you would do that. And without further ado, here is Wayne Krifsky. We are now live with Wayne Krivsky, former general manager of the Cincinnati Reds. Wayne, really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you, Patrick. Appreciate you having me. So you're a lifelong baseball fan, and I'm just I'm curious to hear what you think about the direction of the game, and, and do you like the way the game is going? Uh, in a word, no, Patrick, I don't. There's a lot of things that are uh, – a little disconcerting about the way the game's going, but, uh, uh, you know, we could get into some more specifics about that. I, I think a lot of the new things that have come in have, are, have gone a little bit over the top as far as shifts and things of that nature. And, uh, you know, as an, in, as an industry, I don't think we're make we're doing a very good job developing pitching. We're setting the bar too low in the minor leagues and, we're not, we're not challenging kids. I'm, I'm from the old school and, and, uh, it's, it's some of these games are hard to watch with incessant relief pitchers coming in every third of an inning or two thirds of an inning. It's, uh, uh, some of the games can really drag. So there's, there's some things I think baseball is concerned about and, and probably should be. Do you think that using the relief pitcher, I guess, I know the way like Tampa Bay does, um, that, that may be an advantage or some, some a way for small market teams to keep up with like big spenders. No, I don't think so. I don't yeah. understand the concept that much. I think it's an aberration. I think it's a case where Tampa Bay this year had to be real creative because they had several injuries to their young starting pitchers like Jake Faria and uh, Yanni Torinos and, there's a few other guys that went on the DL that they were counting on being part of their rotation. Brent Honeywell's another one that got hurt. So uh, I, I think it was out of necessity. I, I don't get it when a guy goes in and starts one inning and then the next guy comes in and throws five or, or four. Why didn't he start the game? So someone would, I guess you can think you might have an advantage in the first inning if you got an all right hand hitting lineup and you let a right hander start and then you get them out or whatever. It, it, it's, uh, I don't think it's going to catch, catch on in a major way. I think it's more uh, an aberration with Tampa Bay's individual situation they face this year with the injuries to their rotation. Do you think that the shifts, that Major League Baseball will eventually ban all the shifts? I don't think so. You know, I'm not a big shift guy. I think it's been completely overblown, overdone. Uh I I put the onus more on the hitters. You just got to make adjustments, and if they're going to shift on you, 
you got to figure out other ways instead of trying to hit it over the shift and into the stands. It doesn't happen that often. So uh, that's another thing in the minor leagues. You know, not everybody's made to be a home run hitter. There's more guys that aren't home run hitters that should be using the whole field. And there's one example, Patrick, I can remember a couple years ago, I was in St. Louis watching the Cubs. And it was, I think it was not last year, the year before, but Anthony Rizzo was up for the Cubs and most teams shift on him and the Cardinals did. Well, his first time up, he bunted down a third baseline and got a base hit. Next time around the order, uh, there was nobody on base. He was either leading off an inning or there was one out, two out, nobody on. He bunted again. Okay. He's two for two against the shift on bunts. Third time he came up, the Cardinals were in a normal defense. <laughs> so what does that tell you? How much do they really believe in the shift? Right, right. But Anthony, Anthony Rizzo did it twice in the same game on consecutive at-bats, got two hits, and the third time up they were playing normal defense. So do you think that's, that that's ego-driven, that players will are just refusing to bunt? Because, I mean, I, I mean, it can't be that well, hard to just bunt I don't the think line. I – you know, it's not it's not as easy as it sounds, but these guys don't work at it. They don't they don't work at it and, and take it seriously as a part of their pregame BP. It's not something they're you're going to do with men on base and that type of thing. It depends on the game situation and the the scoreboard will tell you whether it's an appropriate play or not. If you're down three runs and you're leading off the ninth inning and you need guys on base and they're playing you in a shift, you ought to be able to bunt it. It doesn't even have to be a good bunt, and you, and you did your job getting on base. So the game situation will dictate whether it's an appropriate play or not. And, you know, what what good does it do to go up there and, and hit try to hit over the shift and strike out when a bunt down the third baseline, you're on base? Sure, absolutely. But, it, it, but just like anything else, players have to work at it. And it's, it's not the main part of power hitters game, but it – for a normal hitter or whatever, he ought to be able to do it. And it and <laughs> it's just the way it is. I, I uh, there's some things that are that you scratch your head about that are going on, and uh, that's just one example. Well, there there was an article written yesterday, I believe, or the day before, and it, it talked about some uh, some guys who and their thoughts on, on where the game was going. I remember reading uh, Jim Leland was in there and said he, he never really understood why there's, you know, these certain pitch counts for certain pitchers and it starts in the minor leagues. And, you know, how do they pick this, this certain number for, you know, these pitch counts? Um, did you read that article? And what, what did you take away from that? I did read it. I sent it to a lot of people. And I will say this, Patrick, when uh, Jim Leland speaks, I listen, I respect the man a hell of a lot. And he's a, tremendous baseball guy he'll be in the hall of fame someday and uh his point's well taken you know your minor league managers need to use common sense when they take a pitcher out i mean you might not be throwing 100 pitches coming out of spring training when it's 30 degrees in binghamton new york but by the time july or august rolls around you ought to be able, you ought to be stretched out the warm weather your managers need to use some common sense and the way the guy's throwing, the way the hitters are approaching the pitcher, they got to use their instincts and it shouldn't be dictated from the office. That's nonsense. Is it, but normally, everybody, is it normally dictated from the front office? 
Well, that's another trend in the game. I, I believe it is. And in, in, in a lot of cases, there's some kind of magic number. I, I can't tell you exactly, but that's kind of the things you hear, that there are limits. And why else would a guy be taken out after four and two-thirds inning, needing one more out for a win because he's hit his pitch count and they take him out of the game? That's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, it is. It, is, it really is ridiculous. When you were general manager um, of the Reds, this is this question. Uh, it's it's interesting to me, and I'm really curious. How much power did you actually have? Because I think a lot of people think that the general manager uh, just controls everything and can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. But a lot of times, they they have their hand. You know, they have one hand behind their back. So I'm kind of curious as to how much power did you have in making day to day decisions. Well, you can set policy in what you want, but you want input from your player development people too, and. Every player is different. There should be a plan and a development plan for every player, and multiple people would should have input on that plan. And and then once the plan's in place, you need the farm director, if it's someone in the minor leagues, needs to oversee it and make sure it's being done on a daily basis. Uh, it's not so much control. It's more your philosophy. It's 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 uh, You want to give your player development people the freedom to uh, – uh, to do their jobs and they're there because they're qualified and they're there to help players. It's a, it's a player's game. It's all about making the players better. Anything uh, the organization can do to facilitate that is in their best interest and it's in the player's best interest. So, so it's, it's not really about control. It's more about setting philosophy and getting people to either buy in or they might tell me I'm, I'm full of it. And no way we, we ought to be doing it a different way, and then I'm all ears. Let's talk about it. So, but I think your philosophy should be consistent uh, from level to level, so that when players move up or move down, they're uh, they they know the program and they know how we're going to operate. One of the things that you did while while you were there, um, I know I'm not sure if it was a scout or who it was, but I was reading that. Um, you helped. You actually ended up were the one who signed Josh Hamilton. Is that correct? Well, we we drafted Josh Hamilton in the Rule Five Draft, uh, and that was really Chris Buckley's idea, who's a Red Scouting Director and just recently was promoted to Vice President of Player Personnel. So he he approached me with the idea uh, after that season, and it, Chris had done a lot of background work. He's from Tampa. And Josh was working out over in Clearwater, and uh, he had a lot of good information that uh, when he told me, he got my attention, being it was Josh Hamilton. But what you have to remember is Josh had not played baseball in four years, basically. Wow. He'd been out of the game, been suspended, and now he was getting his life in order. And he, and he found someone in the Clearwater area that was willing to help him. And Chris did an, a tremendous amount of legwork. Uh, and conversations, and I, he deserves all the credit. In addition to Red's ownership, Bob Castellini, we approached Bob with the idea just a couple days before the draft because it was a pretty sensitive thing, and we, we wanted to keep it in-house as far as what we were contemplating doing. And when uh, Bob signed off on it, we were, we, were all, we were all ready to go. And, in fact, we moved up in the draft. We had the Cubs draft him for us. We paid an extra fifty grand to move up to pick him. Uh, the Cubs picked him for us, uh, 
uh, we gave them a slip of paper with Josh's name on it when it was their turn to pick second in the draft. And they, uh, after the draft was over, he was traded to us and they made $50,000 on the transaction. And, uh, you know, we got Josh Hamilton. So, and ironically, had we not moved up in the draft, there was a team picking ahead of us. I think we were picking about 17th that year, somewhere in that area. And there was a team picking 14th that had the same idea we did. So it's a good thing we paid the extra 50000 to move up and have the Cubs taken. After you guys got Josh Hamilton, were there – was there help like implemented? I mean, I've heard the stories about he had someone travel with him wherever he went. Well, one of the things when we, when we drafted Josh and started the dialogue and getting to know him and asked him if, you know, was there anything we could do to, to help him? Uh, Jerry Naren was our manager at the time. And uh, Johnny Naren, his brother worked for the Brewers in the, at, I believe a rookie league, hitting coach in I think in Helena Montana and Johnny had worked with Josh as a youngster and had been a real uh uh real help and coach to him growing up and Josh said hey Wayne if there's any way you could get Johnny Naren over here it, it would be a big help so we we went ahead and did that and called the Brewers got permission and and Johnny came over to the big league staff as a uh an assistant hitting coach and uh was really uh, uh, responsible for Josh uh, getting to and from the ballpark uh, and went on the road with him and uh, just uh, was a comfort level for Josh having that person uh, with him at all times. Now, I've heard that one of the reasons that you guys traded Josh Hamilton was because the Reds medical staff said, hey, eventually his, bro- his body is going to break down from all the you know drugs and everything um, that – he had done over the years. Um, is that true or false? Well, there was, there were some concerns, Patrick. I, it, there was a lot of discussion about that, but, uh, you know, that could, you could say that for a lot of players, but, uh, most players are going to break down at a certain point in time, but there were some concerns, but the fact that he hadn't played in four years, I mean, there's, there, we had to be careful with his playing time and, uh, and running him out there on a daily basis, we had to manage manage that a little bit. I believe he did get hurt in August of that first year. I think it was a hamstring issue, and and uh, but we we went into that winter. We weren't looking to trade Josh Hamilton by any stretch, but we we were willing to listen if and the big if was if someone was going to give up a, a young promising starting pitcher we needed pitching at the time we had some outfielders uh uh in the system that we felt were pretty close jay bruce being one of them and and uh we we felt like if someone was going to ante up a real good young starting pitcher why we would listen and but i did not go into the winter saying we got to trade josh hamilton because of x y and z there was that's not true but i was willing to listen and as you well know, there aren't many teams that are willing to talk about young, high upside starting pitchers at, at all. And but the Texas Rangers were, and they were the only team that stepped up and offered a starting pitcher of the caliber of Edison Volquez. So now they got our attention, and for a long time they were not prepared to give up Volquez in the trade. And we also got Danny Ray Herrera in that deal too, that pitched for the Reds a little bit. So. Uh, 
until the Rangers decided that they would do Volquez, why there was there wasn't going to be in any discussion. But once they did, we we had some hard hard difficult conversations because a lot of people were uh, believing in Josh's ability and what if he did this, what if he did that, and it was a tough call to make. But we needed pitching badly, and uh, you weigh the risk and the reward, and and the deal was made. One of your, I guess, two of your famous trades that you made for the Reds, one might be one of the, the best deals of all time, is when you got Brandon Phillips from the Indians, um, as well as Bronson Arroyo, who we had on the show a couple weeks ago. Um, what were you? What did you see from Brandon Phillips? Because I've heard some different stories about scouts who went down to see him. Um, I know he had some supposedly some incidents off the field or in the clubhouse when he was with Cleveland. Um, obviously, that didn't really affect his play with the Reds because he became a, an all-star player. But what were, what, what were you looking at when you were um, thinking about trading for Brandon Phillips? Well, that spring, Patrick, uh, Brandon was out of options and he was in winter Haven, Florida, where the Cleveland Indians spring trained. And uh, we had a scout, Bill Harford, who had seen Brandon play over the years and had seen him in spring training quite a bit and was on, was talking to me from day one of spring training that year. Hey, Wayne, Brandon Phillips is, is going to be available. I don't think he's going to make the team. He's out of options. I really like the kid. Uh, he's athletic. He can really play defense. I think there's some life in the bat, and we ought to, you ought to be stay in touch with Cleveland about him during the spring. I said, okay, Bill, I appreciate that. We stayed in touch. Billy would call me. He never wavered one iota on Brandon Phillips' ability. Uh, the problem was roster-wise at the time, we had Tony Womack, Ryan Friel, and uh, Rich Aurelia, who all were playing second base. I remember Jerry Nairn's comment to me one day. He says, Wayne, what am I going to do with four second basemen? Uh, <laughs> if we got Brandon Phillips, I said, well, hey, Aurelia and Womack and Friel can all play different positions. You know, and Phillips was young. He was about 24, I think, at the time. Uh, a lot of ability younger than the other three, more athletic, and there was more upside there. And, and I believed in, in my scout, Bill Harford. So we wavered on that one, too, back and forth during the spring with the Cleveland GM, and finally we were able to get it done. But it wasn't until after the season had already started. Brandon had been designated for assignment towards the end of March, and ironically, on opening day, he was sitting at home and didn't have a team. Uh, I think the trade was consummated on maybe the fourth or fifth day of the regular season and he came to the big leagues and now it's up to the manager to figure out how to get him in the lineup and and uh it was it was it was a i put jerry in a tough spot but i i believed in my scout and that we had a player here that could help us so he had to manage the roster find playing time for everybody and brandon was a he was a pinch hitter for a week or so, didn't play a lot. And then he finally got in the lineup, and his first week, he drove in 17 runs <laughs> playing regularly, and he never came out of the lineup from that point on. He, he was player of the week and drove in 17 runs, and I believe it was something that hadn't been done since Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa did it uh, years before that. So Brandon's career was off and running. He took advantage of the opportunity, and he never looked back. Yeah, the rest, the rest is history. One of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, 
um, is becoming a general manager. I know you started out actually as a ticket salesman really early on in your career and just worked your way up. Um, what advice would you give to uh, to you know men or women out there who uh, one day want to work want to become a general manager? Well, it's a, it's a long road. At least it was for me. Yeah, some other people it wasn't as long. It it took me 29 years, Patrick. I I played at Duke University for a little bit, and I was fortunate enough to get a job in baseball. It's kind of an entry level job, selling season tickets and group sales. And I ran the radar gun at night at the ballpark, and uh, uh, that was for for two years. And then uh, I was almost I was almost leaving baseball, and a trade was made where I got into scouting and player development in the winter of 1978. Can't believe it was that long ago, but my best advice to people would be, Hey, just take whatever jobs available, go in, learn the ropes, be good at what you're doing. You might catch a break, let people know what your interests are long-term, what part of the operation you'd like to be involved in, whether it's marketing sales or scouting or player development or administration, whatever it might be. Uh, just get your foot in the door the best you can. They have workshops at the winter meetings put on by the commissioner's office. So that's a good place to start. A lot of times you might start in the minor leagues in some sort of operation uh, in sales or marketing, whatever, getting your foot in the door at the minor league level. But I was just lucky uh, to start right in the big leagues with the Texas Rangers. So uh, it, it helps to, uh, you know, just to get get your foot in the door, and, and that can be that can be uh, uh, helped by going to those workshops at the winter meetings. That would be my best advice. Find out when and where they are, and and follow up on that. Do you think that the coaching salaries, our guest salaries of anybody in the minor leagues, will ever increase at all? Because it's it's pretty bad right now. I know uh, one coach. Uh, in his first year, I think the salary was like $25,000. Um, do you think that'll ever improve? Well, yeah. Well, uh, not everybody's making $25,000. I mean, I, I remember my first year, our highest paid manager in the minor leagues was in the Gulf Coast League, and he made $100,000. So I need to get that but job. It's, it's based on his experience. He'd been in the game a long time, and – I'll tell you, it's Pat Kelly, who's now the Reds bench coach, who's been in their system for the last 11 or 12 years. Pat Kelly managed the rookie league team in the Gulf Coast League, and I'm a big believer in having veteran people manage those entry-level clubs. And Pat had managed at the AAA level. He'd managed probably at every level. He'd been a catching instructor. He'd been a scout. Uh, He's just a solid baseball guy. And uh, so that particular year, he, he managed the Gulf Coast League, and that's the type of people I was looking for because you want your young kids to develop the right habits right out of the chute and get their career off on the right foot. And Pat was the perfect guy for that, and you'd, you'd like to have someone like him at every level, and you try to do the best you can to, to have really good people at, at all levels, and it's important to pay them. And, but it took him years to get to that level of making that kind of money. And, and, uh, you just don't jump in and it never worked in baseball before. And you're going to jump on the field and, and make six figures, at least not to my way of thinking anyway. 
Wayne, I really appreciate you coming on today. Been uh, been a really big help. When do you? This is the last question. When do you think the Reds will be in the playoffs again? <laughs> I hope soon. Yeah, I I I think I think they see there's a light at the end. I I I've seen them play a lot this year. I I think uh, the future's pretty bright. I think uh, some of their young pitchers are showing signs of improvement and. Uh, it's an, the more good decisions they make, Patrick, the, the sooner it'll be. So it's really about your decisions and acquiring good talent. And there's so many ways to acquire that talent. It's not it's not just free agents. It's the draft. It's the Rule 5 draft. It's waiver claims. It's minor league trades. It's minor league six-year signings. It's the more good signings they can make and, and the good decisions that they can make, the sooner it'll be. Awesome. Thanks again, Wayne. Really appreciate it. Okay, Patrick, you're welcome.